This morning's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't we just open with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. Please, Lord, be with us now, and we pray that your spirit would show us exactly what you would have us take from this passage this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, generally speaking, I am not a football fan, but I have been enthralled by the progress of the England football team in the recent European Championships. And I'm sure many of you watched too. Who can forget that moment four minutes into the quarterfinal against Ukraine when Raheem Sterling danced through Ukraine's defense and slid the ball just in front of the feet of Harry Kane? Harry was in just the right place at the right time to shoot the ball into the back of the net and put England 1-0 ahead. Or in the same game, when Mason Mount delivered a corner to Jordan Henderson's head, 
to make the final scoreline of a truly amazing game 4-0 and put England into the semi-finals. In those cases, Kane and Henderson were each given something of great value. They recognized that. They worked hard to prepare themselves to take advantage of it. And they got an amazing outcome. And actually, they've been working hard for years to be able to do that. They've developed remarkable footballing skill. They've worked hard as they've been growing up. And only then, after all that hard work over the years and at the right time, did they get the result that meant the nation erupted with a scream during that Ukrainian quarterfinal. Remarkable. But can you imagine a very different response? Can you imagine if Sterling had delivered the cross, Kane had looked and just watched it float across the front of the goal? Or if Mount had curled the corner, but Henderson had decided to choose just that time to Oh, just do a few pull-ups on the goalpost. We would have felt cheated, wouldn't we? Well, that comparison is something like what we see in today's passage called the parable of the bags of gold or the parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25. There we see three amazing opportunities given to different people and we see what outcomes their different responses lead to. And some prompted at the outset to pose a question To those of you that are here as professing Christians, are you really living your life for God? Are you really living your life for God? Today's passage continues the series we've been working through for some time in Matthew's Gospel. If you have your own Bible with you, perhaps on your phone, then can I ask you to turn to that passage with me, please? That's Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. For anyone who's not been with us for the earlier parts of the series, we're in the New Testament part of the Bible, and we're in one of the four books called Gospels that record Jesus' accounts when he was with us as a man here on earth. Matthew's Gospel is written by a Jewish man, Matthew, who was one of Jesus' 12 particularly close followers. Matthew states the purpose of his account in chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, and he says, to make disciples of all nations. The gospel's written with a structure of five extended sermons. Some of you may have heard of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the, f- the first of those five. Uh, and today we're in the fifth and final one, which all takes place during the final few days before Jesus' death. And it's delivered on the Mount of Olives. And you really get a sense that this is Jesus stealing his followers for what's about to happen and how they should respond to his death, his resurrection. And in their own lives, after he's gone back to heaven, to tell them that judgment is coming and that everyone will be judged according to their behavior. And so they must be vigilant and ready. Jesus expands on that structure in chapter 24. As we heard last week from Andrew Redbond, Jesus says that at the end, he will come back to carry out that judgment and that not even he knows when that will be. So we need to be ready for that to happen at any time. That idea of needing to be ready is then emphasized through the parable of the ten virgins, which we heard last time. And they have to be ready for a wedding with their lamps and their oil. And we heard that five of them were not ready and they were locked out and they missed out on the celebration. 
So straight after that, he then comes on to today's passage, the parable of the talents. And in fact, the opening word is again. And that's to emphasize that this is still part of that same line of thinking. The need to be ready because someone of great importance, God himself, could arrive at any minute and the consequences of not being ready are dire. The last part in this section of Matthew from verse 31, straight after today's parable, then expands on what those consequences are. God carries out judgment. He decides who will spend a joyful eternity with him and who instead will be banished. And he illustrates that with the selection of the sheep and the rejection of the goats that we'll hear about next week. So today, we're looking at this passage under three main headings. Uh, The first heading is the servant's behavior. The second is the master's response. And the third is our response to our heavenly master. So that's the servant's behavior, the master's response, and our response to our heavenly master. So let's look at the text. In verse 14, we begin with a man going on a journey and calling trusted servants to him. And we can see that the man trusts them because in verse 14, it tells us that he entrusts them with his wealth. Can you see that? And according to his assessment of their abilities, he gives them different amounts of money, of gold, to manage for him. And then in verse 15, we see that he goes on his way. Now, I think we just need to unpack that a bit to bring it to life. See what's going on here. The first thing to say is that in the parable, the master represents God. And the servants are there to represent different ways that a follower of Jesus could respond over their lifetime. So that they are more, or in some cases less, ready to face the Lord when he comes back. So let's just start by getting some sense of the scale of what the man means when he says wealth. Each of the servants gets a number of talents, it says in verse 14. A talent was a measure, an amount of gold. And it was about the amount that a full-time laborer, worker, might earn over 20 years. So what does that mean in today's money? Well, the website Statista.com publishes annual earnings figures for the UK. And it quotes the median, that's a type of, uh, of average, annual earnings in the UK as being £31,461. So let's take that, and if you multiply that by 20, that means a talent in today's money is worth about £630,000. £630,000. So the third servant who gets one talent, let's say receives about that, 630000 The second servant who gets two talents, receives about one and a quarter million pounds. And the first servant that the master judges as the most able receives about 3.15 million pounds to look after for his master. Well, I don't know about you, but I've suddenly got quite a different picture from the one I first had when I read the words master and servant. This is not someone giving um, out menial tasks to be done. It's It's perhaps more like Richard Branson saying he's going off to investigate space tourism for an extended period. And in the meantime, can each of his divisional CEOs take care of the various other businesses? 
it's probably not quite that scale, is it? But, but it is like the idea, that's the kind of idea, and it is like a wealthy landowner entrusting different parts of his estate to several estate managers. So people like that are um, experienced and skilled and trusted. Well, next let's think about the timing. Verse 19 tells us, after a long time, the master of those servants returned. And then in the meantime, we're told in verses 16 to 18, that the servant who'd been given five talents had doubled it to ten. That the servant who'd been given two talents had doubled that to four. And the servant who'd been given one talent had just left 630,000 in a hole in the ground. What could you do with a significant amount of money back then to double it in a reliable and a responsible way? Well, you couldn't buy stocks in Amazon or Zoom or AstraZeneca at the start of a pandemic, as perhaps some of us might wish we had 18 months ago. But you probably could invest it in property or farming or cloth trading or lending money. So we might imagine that the two servants who got straight on with giving a, getting a return for their master thought along those kind of lines. Maybe the first could see that there was a lot of immigration into Judea at that time, and they decided to build some property for the master, and they rented it out. Maybe the second could see that there was a growing population, and there could be a growing demand for food, and so they invested in farming. Well, what does a good rate of return on investment look like? Well, according to thebalance.com, which is an investment website, the average return on company share investments since 1926 has been... Any guesses? What's a reasonable, what's a good rate of return on investment? 6%, one said? 10.1%. That's, that's quite high, I think. It's higher than I was expecting. Um, similarly, Motley Fool, which is another well-known investment advice website, says that most investments would say anything above 10% is a very good return on their investment over the long term. So to put that in perspective, to double your money at 10% annually takes about seven to eight years. Or even if, if, you, if you really got a very high return, it was 15%, it would take you about five years. So it might be that our first century um, entrepreneurial servants were being given somewhere between five and eight years to show a return, just to try and give some idea as to how long this guy was probably away. Well, now let's look at how the third servant behaves. It tells us in verse 18 that the man with one talent went off and hid the master's money in a hole in the ground, and he just left it there. He ignored it. He buried 630,000 in a hole in the ground for what could realistically be five or more years. Well, to my mind, that doesn't sound a very sensible thing to be doing. So what was going on? Well, we get some clues in verse 24. The third servant says, Master, I know that you were a hard man, so I was afraid, and I decided to bury the money in a hole in the ground. Does that seem plausible to you? Well, I suppose it could be the case that the servant panicked and came to the conclusion that burial was the best option. I mean, I'm sure many of us have done things 
in the heat of a moment that we later regret. But if the master went away for several years, there was plenty of time to reflect and come to a calmer, more considered conclusion. Anyone can make a mistake. And it's whether and how we deal with that that matters. And we don't hear in this passage that the servant, the third servant, realized his error or addressed it. Well, that brings us on to our second main point, the master's response. In verse 19, we read that the master comes back after a long time. I think we need to bear in mind that in those days, there was no internet, there were no phones, there wasn't even a reliable post service for another 1,700 years. So it's quite possible that the master didn't make contact regularly, and then suddenly, he came back unannounced. So it could well be that he'd been out of contact for a long time, even several years, and then one day he just turned up, just like the bridegroom in the parable of virgins that we heard about last week. When verse 19 says the master settled accounts with them, I think the idea is that he wants to see for himself what each of these trusted servants has been doing and assess how his investments are coming along. So let's look at how the master responds to what he finds after his long trip away. We've all been there, haven't we? Whether that's at school or college or in work. For a long time, you've been working on that important project. It's taken up days and evenings and weekends. You've had ideas about it in bed at night. And in short, you've poured yourself into it for ages. And today's the day it's being assessed. Will it be good enough? Well, in verse 20, we see that the servant who'd been given five talents of gold brings... It's interesting, the other five talents that he's additionally earned. I think it's interesting that it doesn't say he brings the original investment back because, of course, the rest of the money is in the property business or whatever it is that he's he's set up for his master. The servant's still getting on with the job that the master has given him to do. But he shows him what he's got back from all the work he's been doing. See, I've gained you five more bags of gold. Here's 3.15 million back. What's the master going to say? Will it be good enough? Well, in verse 21, we hear the resounding answer. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is terrific. If it's for GCSE, it's a nine. It's an A star at A level. And if you're in a work context, the boss definitely wants a guided tour of your site And he wants to understand for him or or herself how on earth you've managed to do such a great job. How exactly does it all run? They want to show them personally. But do you notice it doesn't stop there? The next comment. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The master rewards the faithful servants for their work. This is just the beginning. You've shown such flair with your art A-level. Let's get you into the very best college or top medical school. Or you've done a great job setting up the pilot plant here in Basingstoke. Now we're entering scale-up. You've just shown the senior vice president that you're the best person to lead that. Big things are in store for you. And it doesn't even stop there. Verse 21 finishes like this. 
come and share your master's happiness. Wow, what does that mean? Well, although I haven't been able to find anything explicit about this in the commentaries that I've read, I think this line is going beyond purely a master and servant relationship. I think it is saying that with a loyal servant, this master is willing to share his own wealth and entitlement. And that's amazingly kind and certainly would not have been something that the hearers of the time would have expected to hear. Although it's not the main point here, I think, I think this is, in, is hinting at adoption into the master's family. Now, it's always a good thing when we're interpreting the Bible to check for consistency with other parts of the Bible. And if you want to check that in your own time, then I'll mention for notes, takers, or the recording, passages like Romans 8, verses 14 and 15, or Galatians 3, 26 to 4, 7, or Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. In verses 22 and 23, then the master arranges to meet with the second servant who'd been given two talents of gold. And it's exactly the same meeting and exactly the same response with the second servant. And I think there are a few things we can take from the response to this second servant too. The first thing to note is that it is the master's choice how much gold he chooses to give to each servant. He doesn't give every servant the same. He has the right to assign the gold as he sees fit, and that's what he does. But the master is no less happy with the second servant who worked well with a smaller level of responsibility. The wording of his response is identical. Well, now let's look at the response of the master to the third servant who'd been given one talent of gold and who buried it in the ground. In verse 24 read that the first thing the servant did was to tell the master what the master was like. He says, I knew that you were a hard man. And he went on to tell the master, really, that the master did not deserve a return. He says, you harvest where you've not sown, and you gather where you have not scattered seed. Well, is that accurate? We've just read how the master dealt with the other two servants. He was encouraging about what they'd done. He talked to them about bigger, even more interesting and challenging opportunities for the future. And he even warmly invited them to share in his own wealth and circumstances. That doesn't sound unduly hard to me. And also, the master had sown. He'd invested over five million pounds with his three trusted servants, including giving money to this, the third servant. And he'd also left instructions with his servants about what what he wanted them to do so this doesn't sound to me like a very good start from the third servant i think we probably need to ask the question why is the third servant's response excuse me so different from the others well it strikes me that the problem stems from his understanding of the nature of the master the master expects to invest and get some return and where he sees the right behaviors And results, he rewards them. We also see that unlike the other two servants, the third servant gives him back his initial capital. So he hasn't lost it and he hasn't spent it. It's just that he hasn't applied it either. So either he's been driven by fear and misunderstood what the master wanted, 
that maybe he thought he wanted security for his gold, or worse, he's just been living as if the master didn't really exist and didn't matter. Either way, we see the response starting at verse 26. The master says, you wicked, lazy servant. He says, well, you think I'm hard, do you? Well, as a minimum, you should at least put my money on deposit to earn some interest. But you didn't even bother to do that. And so he has the single talent taken away. And to borrow a phrase from Lord Sugar, he says to him, you're fired. And he throws him out. So that takes us on to our third point. What does this mean for our response to our heavenly father? Well, in the parable, the master is God and the servants represent different ways that we as Jesus followers and servants might respond to him, we might behave. We've been entrusted with something of great value. That's God's word. And it's the key to being saved for all eternity, for us and for others. So if we really are his true servants and we're serving him, God wants to see a return on that from us. How does that work? Well, one way is through a more godly personal life. If we're really his servants, then the gradual transformation in our lives should be visible through things like the way we treat other people. The way we cultivate that behavior in ourselves is through regularly reading the Bible and praying, because that's when God's Holy Spirit speaks to us most clearly. And that leads to the fruits of the Spirit that are described in in Galatians. Now, I know many people, myself included, find that they struggle to make daily Bible reading and prayer into a habit. So I thought it might just be worth mentioning a few practical things that I've found helpful. One thing is, up until the lockdown, um, I used to commute into London on the train. Some of you might, now that we're turning to more normal uh, working patterns, be traveling by train or bus yourselves. Most of the time, I used to see an awful lot of people on the train playing Candy Crush or watching Netflix or something like that on their phone for an hour. I've got nothing against a bit of relaxation, but if you're traveling every day um, or, uh, and, and playing whatever it is on your phone for a lot of that time, then can I suggest that maybe a missed opportunity? You'd be better off having a, a copy of a free Bible app, there are lots around. Logos, I, th- I found a good one. And maybe spending 15 or 20 minutes uh, in the morning on the way to work reading the Bible and then praying about what you've just read. And if you don't do that currently, can I say, uh, uh, maybe set a challenge. Why don't you try it for two weeks and see what a difference it makes to you? I bet you'll find that you arrive at work or college much calmer more composed and together, and you'll probably make wiser decisions during the day. Well, if you drive in the morning, don't despair. Uh, There's also a phone app, a free phone app called Bible App that will actually read the Bible to you. Um, Or, of course, you can access talks like uh, this one or Rob's from our own website um, or from other church websites like um, St. Helens in London has a great big uh, repertoire. Well, a second way we generate a return for the Lord is through our outward behavior. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are saved by grace, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
You may have been here a few weeks ago when Jill Forsythe was interviewed, and she explained that the way she goes about being a Christian in the legal profession is by being diligent and truthful. These are my words now rather than hers, but, uh, and I think impartial and forgiving. So demonstrating that, uh, what her Christian values are. For many of us in our daily lives, it will mean being good witnesses for Jesus by doing our daily tasks diligently, joyfully, fairly, contentedly, even if sometimes it seems quite menial to be maybe clearing up after other people or, or whatever it is that's involved. And also we do need to be looking constantly for opportunities to do what it says in 1 Peter 3, to tell Peter, people that we are followers of Jesus and to do that with gentleness and respect and to get them interested in finding out more about Jesus. Also, we need to make, avoid the mistake that the third servant made. We need to make sure that we, we're not misunderstanding God's character. God is not unfair or unduly hard, but nor is he a complete pushover. We need to be like the first two servants, living all aspects of our lives, knowing that one day our heavenly master is coming back, and he'll want to know what we've been doing while he's been away. But also looking forward to the treatment that the two faithful servants received because we are trusting in Jesus. We can look forward to being welcomed as good and faithful servants and to even bigger things to come in heaven. Well, I'd actually like to finish off by reading a short section from the end of The Last Battle, which is the final Narnia book by C- written by C.S. Lewis, who I think many of you will know is a Christian. Uh, and then I'll briefly pray for us. For anyone who doesn't know, Aslan is the character in the books that represents Jesus, uh, and Lucy is one of the children who follows him faithfully throughout. Here's how the book is. This is the seventh, uh, it's the very final book. Here's how it finishes. Then Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. You have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you reveal aspects of your character through the Bible. 
Thank you that like the master in today's passage, you are trusting and generous. And what you really want is people that long to be in relationship with you so that you can take us into your own family, transform us, and have each one of us play a rewarding part in a plan that is beyond our limited imagination. Please help us to serve you wholeheartedly throughout all our years on earth so that at the last, we might hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and welcome us into an eternity in your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.